Hi, everyone. It's me, Dr. Z, with... JB, still not a doctor, but <laughs> here to hear all the things that you have to yell about towards us. Dr. Z, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Good, good. Um, I am super excited for today's episode, and I think our listeners are going to absolutely love this and find this extremely informative and just just such a such a good interview and topic um extremely pleased to welcome sarah edmondson to the podcast welcome to the show (laughs) thanks so much for having me this is great um so i kind of want to first give our listeners um just a overview of what your experiences were in Nexium and kind of how you got into this. Um, you gave an excellent interview with Glennon Doyle about your kind of step-by-step, how you got into this and what your experiences were and how you got out of this. Um, but if you can kind of give our listeners an overview of, of just kind of your experiences and how you got into this. Sure. I'll give you the, I'll give you the, the quick elevator pitch so we can focus more on the, uh, on the vow and the aftermath. Um, but the long and short of it is that I, I'm, I'm an actor. I have been for over 20 years. And in 2005, I was seeking, um, looking for community, meaning, purpose. And I ended up in a personal development program, which was not that unusual for me, given the other pursuits I had at the time. And <clears throat> I was introduced by a filmmaker named Mark Vicente, who made a film called What the Bleep Do We Know? And was very skeptical at first, ended up uh, really embracing the, quote, tools of this particular um, process and became a real advocate for it and stayed in that community for 12 years. So my experiences changed a lot over those 12 years, but eventually realized that the red flags were worse than I thought. And my husband and I and, and Mark Vicente and his wife and Catherine Oxenberg work together to um, basically (laughs) expose the leadership for what they really were and expose the con, which is that all this personal development that we'd been doing had been a front for essentially a uh, coercive control environment, aka a cult um, with a a sexual component with the leadership, uh, not myself, just to be clear. Um, And when we realized what was really going on behind closed doors, bringing that to the first the authorities, then the media, then the authorities again, which led to a trial and Keith Ranieri behind bars for 120 years plus five years probation. So that's the that's the the, the cliff notes okay, for those who yeah. don't know the story. Yeah. So um, one of the things that struck me um, in listening to your interview and, and, and just in in knowing the history of this was how you initially got into this in the first place, because what I want our listeners to understand is that nobody is immune to this. You know, you're, you're very intelligent, you're successful. And, Mm -hmm. and it's not, you know, a lot of times people will think that a certain personality type, right, will get kind of pulled into this. And and I want people to, to understand that that's not the case. Can you talk a little bit about some of the elements of what got you into this in the first place and what was so so much of a pull for you sure and just to um, address what you just said I do I do find that that is has been a common sentiment since I left five years ago but it is starting to change and in terms of people going you know oh that would never happen to me and that's so crazy and I feel like because of podcasts and documentaries especially about cults and course of control and there's so many 
like dozens, people are starting to have a slightly different perception and recognize, and I have to also thank The Vow and the filmmakers behind The Vow at HBO, that they gave such dignity to myself and the other survivors to the point where people can watch and, and say, I totally would have joined that. And, and that is, I mean, it's validating obviously for me, but it's also, I think a service because it, it gives people the tools to, to, uh, put in their pocket and their tool in their toolbox and go out into the world and then say, Oh, I see a red flag that I wouldn't have seen had it not been for that documentary. And which is so much of what fuels me now. Um, like you said at the beginning, when you introduced me, why I joined Axiom in the first place, one of the reasons was I've always loved to help people and my parents are therapists and I you know, found a place where I could do this and have a community and earn an income. And I just thought it was fantastic until, you know, until it wasn't. Um, but I'm still that person. I still love to help people and I'm just doing it actually legitimately now on the other side of this whole debacle. But it has been an important part of my therapeutic process um, to, uh, to really analyze for myself why I said yes, what I was looking for, how I overrode my gut instinct right from the beginning in a way that I know for certain I wouldn't have done had I had the tools that I have now, which of course would be impossible. But knowing what I know now, I probably wouldn't have even said yes to signing the application because I would have felt the pressure and said, hey, you know what? If this is really a good thing, it'll be there next month. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you bring up a really valid point and it's a big reason why I do what I do and what you're doing what you do is it's almost like prevent, I don't want to say preventative medicine, but it's, it's, it's teaching people these red flags ahead of time so that they can see them so that they don't get into this. Because one of the things that they, they did that you described so well was, you know, we all have this built in mechanism, bite or flight response, whatever you want to call it, intuition, gut feeling. They, from the very beginning, tapped right into that and convinced you not to trust it, which is breadcrumbing in, in narcissism relationships. That's what they do. They'll say, well, I, I told you, I, I you know, I, I, I did this. Why would I lie to you about this? And they'll give you these little bits of truth plus gaslighting. Mm-hmm. So you don't know which end is up, except that you know that things are true. Um, do you find that that was something, too, that you struggled with going through with these kind of blips of truth here and there? Absolutely. And also, it's been a big part of my recovery. It was looking back at what I learned because I wasn't prepared to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's many people who went through with me who would want to throw it all out because it was tainted and it was created by this monster. But I quickly learned that the leadership pulled from all these different modalities and in a, in a way that you'd probably be able to analyze better than me, because this is actually a profession in terms of a mix of CBT and NLP and Buddhism and um, ten, basic tenets of being a good person from various different modalities and self-help books. So m- there was many elements of truth and then layered in with the with Keith's own, you know, personal agenda and objective. And, you know, we believed we were just like you would in healthy therapy, looking at your belief system. And, you know, we, we call it upgrading, upgrading the software. So as we were upgrading and, and having healthier perceptions around self-esteem and money and relationships and communication and all those things, there'd also be implants of very unhealthy beliefs. Yeah, that makes sense. And it also gives you the sense of 
again, not trusting your own core beliefs, not trusting your perception of things. And it also then makes you very um, dependent on these higher up people who, quote, know you better than you know yourself. Yes. Which is makes any system right for abuse. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very hesitant to to be a part of anything, even even therapy. It took me a while to to be open to having a therapist because I was putting myself in the same position. Interesting. And how was that um, process for you to kind of like, because that's a it feels like such a lot to take on, and then to try and pull yourself out as you're describing there it's just like you're going you're trying to leak ass out to the media then you're also trying to get this to the authorities like when did you and your husband find time to decompress and be like what did what just happened to (laughs) us what was the next step for you like that we're still (laughs) decompressing it's you know we've we've been out for five years and it goes in waves you know there's times where i feel like oh I, i have a normal life again and i'm driving my kid to school and going to football practice and and then the vow season two comes out and it's like another it's another wave. Um, but I, I feel like it's, you know, we, we had somebody who was a survivor of a different cult who we connected with early on who said, like, highly recommend you process your trauma before being an advocate, before being public. And I was like, too late. Like, <laughs> I'm processing my trauma on film for the world yeah. to see. And that's it's been it's been hard, but it's also like for my personality which by the way, high functioning anxiety. I listened to your episode on that. That is, that is me. You may have already made that assessment. What do you mean? It's not us either. What are you talking about? What do you That's mean? Not, uh... <laughs> well, it's also, I think why I was so successful and I say successful, yes. not in a self-congratulatory way, but in a self-awareness way of why I was good at being a recruiter and working for them because I liked that. I, 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 I thrive, well, not in a healthy way, but I, I did thrive in that environment in terms of it go, 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 you. build, 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 build. Right. Yeah. It motivates you. And, you know, yeah. and high people that have high functioning anxiety are, are extremely motivated, especially in areas that they feel super passionate about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think I relate to your story the most is because I, I spent uh, quite a few uh, years in Los Angeles. I relate to you in a way that, you know, the, the voice acting, acting in general has that kind of acceptance already already yes. built in. We're highly motivated to do all those things. And I think I had a, an experience that almost, you know, probably saved me from walking down one of the paths towards an MLM or a cult or whatever. Because, like, in Los Angeles, I don't know if people understand this, like, Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles is right next to the Scientology. I was going to say, um, yeah. how did you avoid that? Uh, uh, well, I won't say the the actor's name, but I was in a Ralph's with a friend, and I tell this story all the time because it's just like, what just happened? Yeah, this person was very famous, TV famous. Everyone knew who this person was. I'm sitting at Labor Day trying to get a case of beer um, with a friend, and we're just talking about the fact that South Park made fun of Scientology. It was right around when that episode was made. And this famous actor comes up to us and is calling us a bunch of baby rapers. And I was like, what just happened? I was like, you just up and down like, oh, I bet you know, I know exactly what you guys are talking about because baby rapers all talk about the same thing. And this was an attack from, you know, to defend Scientology. And I'm going, Whoa, and I, th- I this is all kind of new at the time, and that was what woke me up to like something's wrong here. This doesn't really make sense. There's stress test places all over LA. 
And you could walk right in there and be like, oh, a community that finally understands me and get caught up yeah, right oh, in it. You said sure. something in the interview that just blew me away. Three or four days yes. Of, yes. of just switching where your references. Yes. So like what what was uh, it, like kind of looking back at it from it now, do you understand how what they tried there? to manipulate you mm-hmm. yes. that way? Yeah. I, I feel like I do, but also partly because I became, I never became a facilitator, but I was basically, for lack of a better metaphor, I was basically a producer of those trainings. Like I would, you know, set up the, you know, the caterer and fly people in and book the hotels and fill the trainings. And then I'd welcome everybody and I'd sort of oversee it. This is like later, later in my, in my time there. So I was very much aware of some of the systems in place. We just, I just thought I was doing it like for the good of the people, right? She's like not doing, I didn't think I was manipulating. I thought I was helping them with their growth and helping them, you know, overcome their objections, like feeling uncomfortable around sashes and all the things that I had felt. So part of my role was to, to, you know, um, stop people, stop people or help them with their concerns before they left. You know, if, oh, so you feel uncomfortable about the sash. I get it. I felt that too. But what I found was what it means is like, it's a symbol of my growth. So in my reflection of being a student and then also later as a higher rank doing what was done to me, I can see very clearly what happened, which is that I, I wanted to grow. I I mean, I was already open. Some people show up at these things and they don't want to grow. They're, you know, they're being dragged by a spouse or something or their boss says, take this program if you want to work with me. And they're like, okay, whatever. But they don't really give a shit. Sorry. Can I swear on this? Of course. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Phew. (laughs) Phew. I'm such a trucker. Feel free. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So my friends call me the trucker princess. Um, so that's just, you're in good company. Good, good, good. Yeah. We'd like uh, to join the convoy. If that's yes, yes, yes. You can join my my freedom convoy. <laughs> also, I wanted to work with Mark, who had referred me to the program. I wanted to make films and and media that shifted consciousness. That was my goal. I didn't want to do beer mm-hmm. commercials anymore and like the vampire TV shows I was working on. Like, no offense, to people who do that stuff. It just wasn't meaningful to me. So. I, and also I paid a lot of money. Like my rent at the time was $400 a month. And now I'm paying over two grand for a five-day training. Everyone's like, you're crazy. You're crazy. Like, I'm like, well, I got to get my money's worth, right? So, you know, the, it, what's the, you know, you guys probably know better. What's that term in psychology where you always want to get your, you want, there's, um, I'm blanking on it right now. Well, it's definitely a Dr. Z question. Dr. Z. <laughs> there's a term where you're like trying to validate your, your purchase. When you're so cost yes, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So you've invested and this just gets worse, right? Like there's yeah. people just, just to cut to, and we can talk about this more later, but there's people who are still loyal to Keith, as you know, from the yeah. vow, that's just gotten way worse. Right. Wow. I, I pulled yeah. out of my investment when I did, which was hard enough. Imagine people trying to pull out now they're, you know, they're, they're just doubling down, doubling down, doubling down. But anyway, so yes, I can see very clearly, um, what was done in that time and how my insecurities and also like like you just said in terms of being an actor i'm coming from this world where things are not measurable you can do all the things you don't get the job i thought that this would i thought the stripe path was the answer to all of my self-esteem issues and the reason why i wasn't more successful because and i don't think i've gotten into this much in other interviews although i do think it's in the book where um there's this pattern called self-esteem sequitur 
Do I talk about that in the book, Self-Esteem Sequitur? I can't remember. I haven't read my own book in a couple of years. <laughs> I think there's just a little bit in there, honestly. Uh, there's okay. not a ton on it, so it would be great to... Sure. To, yeah, because yeah, from a... From a from, you know, particularly for this podcast, I'll, I'll dive into it because I think it's interesting from a psychological point of view. They define self-esteem as a range of options in a given area. Mm-hmm. So somebody could have high self-esteem with money, but not with relationships or uh-huh. vice versa. Right? So they had one, one of their exercises if i came in and like well i, I want to be an actor but i have low self-esteem around it they'd help you to write out all the options that you hadn't yet considered doing and that would be you know getting into class or finding a mentor or um you know hiring a personal coach or all the things you could do to like really take you did the- talk about this did, did I? I yeah because i i i remember i don't know if it was in the documentary or not but i i remember the the options and and coming up with the things that are outside of your comfort zone that you could also do that maybe you haven't thought of doing that would boost that self-esteem. Right. And I still, to this day, use that little bit in a moment where I'm like, I don't know what to do here. And then I'll write out all my options and then I'll figure out what's right for me. That in and of itself is fine. But what was presented is that there was no other place in the world where you could actually raise your self-esteem in a measurable way. And that's the part that, that's the part that really Chaps your ass. Made my blood boil, not to (laughs) cut you off, but, but this idea of, of, you know, there's very few things that human beings have at our disposal that are solely ours, right? Mm -hmm. One is our self-esteem, our self-worth, our core beliefs. And the other one, which is interesting because Keith tapped into this. And when I heard it, I was like, that has nothing to do with weight. He doesn't care that anyone's thin. It's because eating is something that's why people develop eating disorders. It's a control thing. It's the one thing that you can control, what goes in and what goes out. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he he tapped into that was just another way to kind of control something that is inherently yours. Yes. And and so the 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 fact that there was this control of elements of a person that are solely theirs. Again, it 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 made my blood boil because it's like you know, it's, it, listen, it's easy for me to hear it and say, you know, these are all the things that are mm-hmm. solely individualized things that nobody else can access, but yet they figured out a way to, to access it. So your growth and your development was contingent on them, yeah. right? And, and it gives you this total loss of control and autonomy um, and actually goes in the total opposite direction yes. of what you're trying to achieve. Exactly. And and let me be clear for your listeners who may might might be going like, wait, they're controlling calories. That wasn't I, like yeah. first of all, I didn't I didn't do that, but most people did. Yeah. And I think that's important to know that happens slowly over time. Like in my first yes. five day training, that wasn't, you know, you could do whatever you wanted. It's more as you got like moved to Albany or got closer to Keith or being on the executive board or the closer yeah. that you got to the inner circle, the more the more control was the it word? was put on you. It's like this yes. is how I describe it to women who uh, and men who are in relationships that are that are um, tend to be narcissistic. Is that it's not this sudden onset of right. all this control and manipulation. It's like a faucet that's dripping, and you don't really pay attention to it until you're standing there and you look around and you realize you're underwater and mm-hmm. you don't know how the hell this happened, and right. then you can't get out because you don't have any way to get through. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of the, the, the path that I saw this, this going down for you. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. It was a slow drip. And also 
you know, back to your earlier question and looking at having to like, you know, figure out how I, how I got in this situation, what the choices I made and also the things I overlooked because I didn't know, A, I didn't, a, I didn't know what I was looking at. And the, the other part of it was like, and that this is the, you know, the thing that I have to reconcile for myself and also be careful because Nexium's tendency is to always look at like, how did you cause this? In, in other words, making you take more responsibility than you need it's to. Vic, I mean, it's victim blaming. Victim, yes. Yeah. But the part that I, I, I had to also kind of own was that I was individuating again. I was 27. I had already moved out. I'd gone to university. I had come back home and moved in with my mother. Supposed to be for a few months. Ended up being a few years. So I was like individual. And my mom's a therapist. So I'm like, I'm doing my own thing. And any, any sort of like doubt from her was, I just, solid, it's the same thing I did with acting. It's like, I can do this. I'm going to show you how I'm going to do this. And so I'm trying to prove, you know, prove everybody wrong. It's not a cult. What are you talking about? Like, this is the best thing ever. Or if it is a cult, it's a cult of happy, successful people. And I'm doing great. Thank you. Right. And there's a right. righteousness that I had around that. And I, I have to talk about it because I see that with the people who are still loyal. I so do I get think, that though, mindset. That that, yeah. And I, but I also think ironically that that's what makes made you strong enough to leave as well. Mm -hmm. I think that resiliency is also something that, that works for you now with this and being able to separate yourself from it. Yes. And also I think the reason I was able to do that is because I never moved to Albany and I never gave myself to him physically um, or gave it my all. And I always had my foot in reality outside of Albany. Um, yeah. I think that gave me the perspective, even though obviously I went in way farther than I wish I wish I had <laughs> in terms of getting branded and all those things. But um, that I think that's part of the whole picture is I, I, I wasn't his, I didn't have my head fucked with as much as many of the people who moved there yeah. and were close to him. And you also said that your parents, which is exactly what I tell people who are outside of these types of situations, to never, never leave them fully because they're going to need you when they gain that objectivity. They're going to need somebody to pull them out. And the fact I think that your family deliberately stayed there, I think was mm -hmm. a huge plus for you because they were able to give you that objectivity. Yes. And welcome me back with open arms. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's right. amazing. And how did you, you just said that there too, like, why didn't, in your opinion, why didn't they think they fucked with you? Like, what is it? Is it because you were too strong? Like that one foot out all the time was just like, we know that if we go that route, we're not even, if we just keep doing what we're doing. And, and yeah. you even said like a motivational promotion or whatever. Yeah. Then that kind of just keeps the thing flowing. Is that more or less I think there's think? a couple things. I think one is that I was unwittingly a pipeline you know i was just sending new people fresh meat as keith used to say fresh meat fresh meat just like bringing people to albany um so they didn't want to lose that but i in retrospect knowing now how he was trying to bring people and women close to him he did try with me multiple times i just didn't know that's what it was he, he doesn't he's not like a normal guy he's like hey you know you're cute let's hang out you, you can't you can't do that in this format. So he would do things like, I want to start a new, a new company or a new program, or I'm doing this new project. And he'd, he'd invite me or, you know, many women. And then, then, he, then there'd be like a mentorship and then there'd be a closeness. And then he'd be like helping them with their relationship and their trust issues through a relationship with him. So that happened in stages as trust was built. I never got 
past the like I, there were so many things that he invited me to that bec- partly because I was in Vancouver and partly because I thought his his ideas were really dumb but I couldn't say that so I'd sort of excuse myself from the project I counted five or six different things that that uh were were, were things that I've managed to avoid and maybe that was also my deep intuition that I just wasn't caught cognizant mm-hmm. of and it seems too that every step you took towards autonomy as risky as it may have been. So, you know, not moving, um, having a child, all of these things that take you further away from Keith, further away from Nexium, that, that kind of make you your own person. It seems like at every single one of those points is when the attempt and the effort to, to put more control on you would happen. Yes. Yeah. And that de- it definitely did happen. And I, what I have also learned about myself is that I'm outwardly obedient and inwardly a bit of a rebel. So I had no plans on moving to Albany. I did not want to. I did not want to leave my center. I didn't want to leave my family, all those things. But outwardly, I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, like I even had a real estate agent. We were looking at homes. And I was like, I told Claire and Nancy and Keith, yeah, you know, we're, we, this is, we were trying, but I got to get my green card. Like I was stalling. You know what I mean? Like I was pretending. <laughs> so like trying to be a good girl, but inside I'm like, fuck that. Albany sucks. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, Vancouver for Albany. I mean, come I know. on. That's just alone. So, so there, I mean, again, that speaks to that resiliency. There was a part of you that you, you, you knew it didn't feel right and you weren't willing to give up that, that, in, that gut feeling that they were trying so desperately hard to, to just disconnect for people. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I've, I've learned also that um, this is from Stephen Hassan's book, uh, Combating Cult Mind Control. Um, his theory is that there's like the pre-cult identity and then the cult identity. And then once you, if you're able to wake up, you go right back to your original identity. Um, and sometimes it's even hard to access memories from the cult oh. time. Um, and Nippy and I still to this day, I'm like, oh my God, do you remember? Did this, ha- like, did this actually mm-hmm. happen? Because it's such a different, it's almost like I had a different brain in that brain. time. And, and I think also too, that's why I was saying it changes your brain chemistry um, and the gaslighting too. I mean, you know, you're you're being fed this reality. You're being fed this this narrative that that people are adopting, and you start to question your reality, and it becomes a totally different world, totally different reality. And so, you lose touch with the the old reality, right? And so, when you come out of it, it's it's like there's this distinct there's this distinct switch that happens almost. It, it's like what happens to you during that cult, it was processed in such a different way because of the mind control, because of the gaslighting that it was not only taken in differently and processed differently, but stored differently. Mm-hmm. Yep. And also I wasn't food deprived in the way that many women were, but I was definitely sleep deprived. Sleep deprived. Yeah. And I was yeah. very much partly because of the anxiety we talked about, but also just the way that the, company, I say that loosely, was set up in terms of like my time commitment to things. When I when I left and I cleared my schedule, I had, I think it was something like between 25 and 30 one hour like set meetings through my throughout my week, just of conference calls, like proctor calls, senior senior proctor call, executive board call, goals call, um, commerce call, all these different calls. Like I I was always on. And if I wasn't on the one of those calls, I was on the phone either 
trying to bring somebody in or coach them or help them with their lives or whatever. So I, I had no downtime. I had no downtime mm-hmm. to, to think and contemplate and go, is this even what I want? And that's on purpose. Yes. hundred percent. Right. On purpose. As lo- yeah. As long as, as long as they keep you busy in that reality, then you don't have time to think and, and be autonomous. Yes. I mean, that's, that's, you know, the worst thing that could happen is, is you develop that autonomy. Yeah. And actually I'm, I'm speaking of Scientology from earlier. I'm, I'm reading Mike Rinder's book right now for, uh, we're having him on our podcast next week. And I, I obviously knew a lot about Scientology and my cult recovery, but I hadn't done that much of a deep dive. And basically what Scientology is, is like Nexium on crack. Like uh-huh. it was, it yes. was a much more organized and much more efficient version. Like I think Keith wanted to be like Mr. Hubbard, um, but failed, you know, like he couldn't get people to act in the same way these Sea Org members were. And, Mm -hmm. but, but, but at the same time reading his book, I'm like, oh my God, like that, we were just going, going, going. We never, we never stopped to think, wait, is this even, I even like this? (laughs) I even want to do this. No, right. You can't. Yeah. And I guarantee if you did come to that understanding that you didn't like it, then they would tap into, well, you don't like it because it's growth. It's uncomfortable. Yes. And also, right. um, and I, I got this from Stephen Hassan, there's in all cults and especially religion, there's a belief of what happens if you leave. With most religions, it's like, you know, you're going to die in hellfire or whatever, right. whatever the thing is. And I was like, I don't have that. And I thought, no, I do. Because pe- when people left, we would say things like, well, I guess they're never going to work through that. Oh, it's too bad. Like the stripe path we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. If somebody left at a certain point, it would, we'd always say, well, they're, they're going to hit that limitation in their lives. So it's, it, we almost felt sad and for never them. Progress. Yeah. 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 And I, so I felt that. And I, sometimes to this day, I even like will ha- catch myself thinking, well, I never worked through that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is it because I left? Or maybe it's because their tools don't always work. Some of the tools right. were good, but they weren't theirs. They weren't Keith's. Or maybe there's nothing. Maybe it's something you don't, you don't even need to work on. Yeah, I know. That, that's been <laughs> right. a huge part of my healing is like, okay, this is just who I am. Yeah. Because yeah. that right. was definitely not the mindset before. It's like, you could change anything about yourself. Why would I want to change? I love who I am now. Like, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that's, it's such a negative viewpoint of like, feeling like shit about yourself as a motivation yes. to evolve. And the interesting thing in this, in this, and I, and then I, I definitely want to make sure we hit on kind of your, your ex and how, and what you've been doing and how you've been kind of managing this and helping people. One of the things that's, that, that again, just kind of uh, made the, the, the hair on the back of my neck stand up was when, um, again, this was in your, your, um, Glenn and Doyle and when, when you were talking about the sashes and I don't remember who specifically said it, but you know, it's, 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 um, that martial arts kind of right like progression as you get different belt different sash mm-hmm. um and there's different markers you have to meet and you know you're thinking like well i mean i it's just a sash right or like why, why do people care but then somebody said it's just like being in a brownie troop with the and i was like oh my god like that's exactly what that is and so you see that buy-in and you see that motivation to want to get to that next point and, you know, that's again, I say this so that people listening know that like we are conditioned aside from a cult, we, like every kind of group has that. And we are conditioned as a society to think that there's this thing that we need to achieve or get, but it's not something that's tangible. Mm-mm. 
and it's constantly evolving and changing. And so, you know, you get these, whether it's a sash or a belt or a, a button or a badge, to what end? And right. I think that people, like you said, I, you know, you were a searcher, you were looking, you were always kind of looking to evolve. And it tapped into that idea. But what it did falsely was it, it made it into a quote science and mm -hmm. really tricked people into thinking that if you followed this, you were going to be able to attain this thing. Right. Enlightenment. Enlightenment. Yeah. It's, it's so true. And one of, one of my things I really like to share with people is because I'm sure there's healthy groups out there, um, but you have to be able to graduate from it. And that has to be an end. And many of these things that we've talked about have no end and the bar kept being changed. And that's something that I also see in, in Scientology, but in all these groups, the, the criteria for the next level always changes. And, you know, I don't, I haven't looked at brownies and the structure of it recently, but there is like a set amount of more badges to achieve. <laughs> and then you go to like yeah. owl or whatever, Yeah, you know, you know, and it's interesting too, because even in, with narcissistic abuse, the rules of the relationship are arbitrary and they keep changing and nobody tells you why they're changing or what they're changing for. And it's, it's really kind of that same, it's, it's the same theme. Yeah. And, and all of that. And I see this not just with obvious things like Nexium and Scientology, but with a lot of personal growth and development seminars, it's built on that premise. It's like, you're not okay. And here's a tool set to fix it. And we are the only way to do it. Like if there's one, there's one thing to say, hey, here's a tool set. This has helped me use it or don't use it. But any, t that's a huge red flag for me. And people say, this is the, this is the way. And yeah, for you, know, you yeah, <laughs> or yeah, whatever right. it is, like yeah, it's right. always, and, and that's the thing too, what you guys are explaining. It's finding that Zen being, I think you even used the phrase, uh, you know, tempt temptation for simplicity. Mm -hmm. It's just we all believe that there's this point in life where yeah. you're going to be like, ah, I'm going to be satisfied and there's nothing that I need to achieve. But you're dead. for all of us who are high functioning, <laughs> you know, that's never going to happen. Wow. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. I'm Sarah, I'm Sarah, I'm sure you didn't know that either at, at 27. And that's where yeah. we're constantly chasing that thing all of the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Not being like I said, this is just me, and right. I'm cool with that. Right. Yeah. You know? And you're fluid. There's no end yeah. point. You know, everything's fluid, and and you know, same goes for anxiety, right? Yeah. Like people say, well, well am I ever going to not be anxious? And I, you know, jokingly say, I'm like, yes, when you're not here anymore, then you won't be anxious anymore. You know, it's like these naturally occurring things. There's no end point to it. Um, but I think you bring up a really good point that that if there is this we are the only people we know you best we can help you it's only us that's a that's a huge red flag i think mm -hmm. that's very helpful for people to hear yeah i'm very passionate about giving people those red flags to to avoid what i went through <laughs> if you could kind of give our listeners um like a couple really good kind of this is what to look out for so that you don't fall into this what, what yes. would they be what would you tell um, people so like we just, so starting from the beginning, feeling pressure to sign up, um, having a leader that's on a pedestal that everybody, and this is the thing is it's not just one of these things. It's a combination. And one of them in and of itself doesn't make it a cult. You know, somebody said to me, Oh, like you were on Glennon's podcast. Like she's got a cult following. And I'm like, that's not a problem in and of itself. It's what do they do with that, with that authority? Right. So, um, other people around them that, there's some sort of checks and balance, um, 
if there's money exchange, where's the money going or some questions to ask. Um, I always encourage people to research if there's allegations or legal uh, action of any kind where there's smoke, there's fire. Usually it's not, doesn't just happen in a vacuum. And if you ask somebody like, why is this person saying this about the company or the group or whatever? And if they write them off as being crazy or a jilted lover, that's a huge red flag for me. Um, so to see how that's handled, I, all that being said, I recommend doing research about groups outside of the group itself. Cause the group will always, if the, if there's something nefarious going on, they will lie to protect themselves. Um, but I think that the main red flags, once you're already in something is, um, like love bombing being an over, an overt, um, expression of making you feel like you're special, that you're part of something. And that I have to say it with the caveat, just, just because you go to a group and you feel like, Oh, like this is my tribe doesn't mean there's something bad going on because I'm sure there's groups that legitimately are kind and loving and supportive. Um, that in combination with then being undercut. And I know, you know, this from your narcissistic work, but as soon as you're then criticized or feeling less than, and then you're trying to like get back in the good graces. So there's this back and forth, just like when the abusive relationship, right? Just going back and forth between being on the pedestal and then being smashed to the ground. So the love bombing, Oh, being isolated. So if you're, mm -hmm. if you come in with, you know, friends and you're being separated or being isolated from the rest of society, that's a big red flag. So you have no one to talk to about your concerns, except for the, the group itself. Um, pressure to purchase. I think we covered that, like continue and pay more money and there's a dependency that's created. One of the things that's a really good question to ask is like, what happens when people leave? Can people leave and come and go? Because there's a lot of things that are culty, but there's not a problem. If you leave, you're not shunned. Like when, if people leave and they're shunned from a community, that's a, that's a major, not only red flag, but it's like one of the number one tenets of a cult or coercive control. And the other thing is what happens when people question, are they made to feel question authority? Like are they, yeah, question authority. Are they ostracized? Mm -hmm. Are they criticized? Um, and unfortunately, I, I, I've yet to see a structure that's not vulnerable to abuses of power. I see. I mean, I see it everywhere, and some things are more culty and destructive than others. But um, if you feel uncomfortable with something, chances are there's something there to look at. And unfortunately, like what happened with me, that was dismantled on day one. So my discomfort was a sign that I had something to look at and I'd paid money. So I better stick it through. Mm -hmm. There's some nuggets for you. No, those are great. I think they're extremely helpful and they relate to a lot of things. And I, and I like what you said about how it's not just one of these things or two of these things. It's, it's all of these things together that create this very distinct blueprint, very distinct pattern and almost a playbook um, you know, and so there are, like you said, there's groups out there that are healthy and promote, you know, healthy mindsets and, and they may have some of these characteristics, but again, it's all of these things taken together and it's, you know, over time, you're not going to see all these things up front, right? Mm -hmm. These are things that happen very slowly over time, methodical with purpose, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and there's a reason why, you know, at, at the, at the end, um, before you left, there's a reason why the control went the way it did. Right. And there was a reason why it got more, um, personal, right. And it got scarier because 
the longer you're in it, like you said, the more efforts to control you have, it has to happen or else, you know, it doesn't work as well anymore. And mm-hmm. so I think it's important for people to understand that these things that, you know, that you are speaking about are not all just dumped on in the beginning. Right. No, it could happen slowly over time. And the other thing I forgot to mention, which is super important, is there's always an us and them mentality. Yes, that, us against that, the world. Yes, against the world. It's, and that's something that, you know, unfortunately, I was super guilty of. And I, that's where that righteousness came from. We thought we had all the answers. And again, that's another red flag when a group saying, we have the answers, this is the path. Everybody else is going to die in a fiery brimstone because they don't <laughs> believe in xyz and and then also demanding that loyalty from the followers yes 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 or else you're bad or wrong or yes not going to evolve and i have a couple it, of great resources and books and stuff i can get, share with you for your show notes um or at sarahnason.com slash resources so if people are like ah, oh, and they want more specifically about cult related resources it's there that would be great. I'm going to get a ton. I know I'm going to get a ton of questions about this. So that would be wonderful. <laughs> thank Sarah. Thank you so much for this. This was so good and excellent. And just, yeah, thank you for being honestly brave enough to, to, to share your story because this Absolutely. is by no means easy. I am sure at, at, at any point. So, um, I really appreciate kind of, that. Yeah. I think you are brave and just strong and, an amazing human being. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, again, Sarah has a, an amazing podcast with her husband, a little bit culty, um, and has some really, really good guests on. Um, and also the HBO documentary, The Val in the second season now, um, which is about all of her experiences that we've been talking about with the Nexium cult. Um, and definitely, definitely if you can watch it because it's just amazing. Oh, and your book, I don't want to forget your book again. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. And also have to be remiss if I didn't mention hashtag I got out, which is a a hashtag movement that's helping people to share their stories and help um, blow the lid off the shame that is so often comes with these stories and has been definitely a big part of my journey. So I want to share that with your audience. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, We are so happy to have had you so thank you for coming thank you thank you so much sarah